Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Groucho Marx famously said upon resigning from the Friars Club that he would never want to belong to any club that would have him as a member. That line has been used since repeatedly by those that are afraid of not belonging. What better way to prevent being excluded than saying or convincing yourself that you don't want to join? However, the facts and our world today tell us something entirely different. Not only do we want to belong, but we want to belong to groups that are exactly like us. While tribalism may be built into our DNA, the added anxiety and fear of our culture and our world today put that tribalism on steroids. The tribalism enhanced by our high-speed 24-7 world accentuates fear and fear of the other. It drives our identity politics, and it fuels our confirmation bias. In short, the more we want or need to belong, the more we are divided, all leading us to the conclusion that indeed Groucho had the right idea. We're going to talk about this today with my guest, Howard Ross. He's a social justice advocate and a founding partner of Cook Ross. He has consulted on areas of corporate culture, change, leadership development, and diversity and inclusion. His work has been published in the Harvard Business Review, the Washington Post, the New York Times, and other publications. He's a best-selling author, and his newest book is Our Search for Belonging, How Our Need to Connect is Tearing Us Apart. Howard Ross, thanks so much for joining us. Jeff, it's great to be with you, and you couldn't, you couldn't have more perfectly captured the essence of, um, of what we're here to talk about in that introduction. Well, thank you for that. First of all, one of the core things that you talk about is that this idea of needing to belong is really one of the most primal things that we have. Talk about that first. Yeah, absolutely, Jeff. Um, you know, if you think about it, uh, we come through evolution from a species that in the early stages of our development, and actually we could, we could even argue for most of the human history, um, couldn't survive by ourselves. You know, it was almost impossible to survive by ourselves. You had an occasional person who was the hermit who lived in the jungle, in the woods or something who could do it. But for the most part, we needed others to survive. We needed others for protection, um, for mutual benefit, um, for uh, hunting, for building homes, for all kinds of things. And, and it, it's, it's actually built into our DNA to need to be with others. Um, it, you know, Matt, Abraham Maslow created his famous model in 1943. I'm sure most of our listeners have heard of Maslow's hierarchy. And the basic argument was that you had to get basic needs met before you got other needs met. So the basic ones are the physiological needs and then safety. And then in his, in his model, which is usually depicted as a pyramid, you go then to belonging and then self-esteem and finally self-actualization. And basically what Maslow was saying was... If you're starving to death, you're not going to be sitting around contemplating life. You're going to be out looking for food. Um, and, and that has been one of the foundational models of modern psychology for 75 years. Well, it now turns out through the neuro and cognitive science that we're looking at that we realize that Maslow may have been wrong, that belonging may in fact be our key human need. And if you think just logically, it makes sense. The most vulnerable time of a human being's existence occurs immediately after birth. If we don't belong to somebody for the first few years of our lives, we literally will not survive. And so the first impression that we have as human beings is I exist because you exist and this carries on throughout our life hence the impact of peer pressure normative behavior and all those kinds of things that we've seen so often in history the other side of that though is this need we have for the new this need for exploration the need to find something or see something different talk about that as it runs up against this yeah, um, it, it, we we do have various levels depending upon our 
you know, our particular you know structure as human beings. You know, some people being more adventurous than others, some people being more um, sort of uh, driven to hold on to the status quo and order as we know it. And anybody who you know has five friends know that you have some of them that are one and some of them are the, are the other. You, know, you have the one who's willing to try something new when they go to the restaurant. You have the other who's, who wants to eat the same thing that they've eaten every time because it's dependable and a sure thing. So there's no question that some of us do that. But for most people, and, and it's important for people to realize, when, when I talk about these patterns, um, I'm talking about archetypes of behavior. There are obviously exceptions to any rule, but I'm talking about the overwhelmingly archetypical human behavior. Uh, even when we venture out, we generally try to formulate those new things within the context of that which we've done already. So we expand ourselves, but we don't necessarily snap ourselves and go into something completely different. Uh, we usually reframe that. Um, and so, um, you know, one of the things that we can do uh, to, to try to break down some of these barriers is actually to use that kind of curiosity that you're talking about, which is one of our greatest human qualities, the curiosity that leads to innovation and deeper understanding, to use that curiosity to try to understand what do people on the exact other side of this, for example, political equation experience? Um, what do people who are different from me racially experience? If I'm a man in the face of this Me Too movement, what are women experiencing? And, and what would it be like to be one of them in this setting? To, to literally, as, as you know, we've heard so often said, to walk in another's shoes to see what it might feel like. And, and it's that curiosity that you're talking about that can help us break down some of these barriers. Of course, what gets in the way of that and what has been so difficult of late is the amount of fear that people have as a result of a world that is changing so rapidly, a culture that is changing, and that is sort of always on 24-7. And that fear really stands in the way of that exploration in many cases. Yes, absolutely. And, um, you know, I would suggest that, um, that, uh, that the fear that we're experiencing now is almost like a societal level of post-traumatic stress that, mm -hmm. that we've been living in really for, you know, since, since 2000. And one since 9/11, um, that that we've we've dealt with a level of fear that we haven't seen before, and we know from studying the brain what happens when people uh, get into intense fear situations. You know, Daniel Goleman, the guy who we credit with, you know, bringing emotional intelligence to the world or the study of emotional intelligence to the world, um, has called it an amygdala hijacking. What happens in the brain is the fear center of the brain, the amygdala, which is generally there as their core protective mechanism, but can we but can often be be mitigated by our, our metacognitive abilities, the ability to watch ourselves think that lives in the prefrontal cortex, which is the most you know, powerful part of the human brain and maybe the most unique and distinct part of the human body in general. Um, usually that fear is mitigated somewhat because that, that more conscious part of the brain says, I know you're feeling scared, but you're being a little excessive. You know, we have that little inner conversation with ourselves. Mm -hmm. When the fear gets too intense, the amygdala takes over the system and it's almost like the top gets blown off. The, the prefrontal area doesn't control anymore and the fear leads the way. And that does one of three things to people usually. It leads to our reactive responses fight, flight, or freeze, um, which most of us have experienced. It shows it could even occur as a release of chemicals in the body that, that some of us have felt at times we were really panicky. Um, it leads to wanting to take control of our situation. When we feel fearful, we feel out of control. And we do that either by grabbing control ourselves or by turning towards somebody, usually historically, interestingly enough, a man who has a strong sense of 
feeling like they, that person, this person is going to control, control things for us. It's no, it's no accident or coincidence, for example, that in most cases in human history, when a fascist government has taken over, whether it was Hitler in Germany, Mussolini, uh, the Taliban, that they all followed times when those societies were in tremendous disarray and upheaval. Um, and, and somebody comes in and says, I can take care of you. I can make this right. I can make it good again. Um, that person all of a sudden, okay, he's going to control the situation. We'll turn towards him. And the third is that we develop a sense that this is permanent. It's going to be like this forever. It's everywhere, and it's going to affect me personally. Um, and those three things can lead to very reactive responses that are not always our healthiest or best responses. And what's different today, it seems, is that while those three things have existed before, they haven't existed in the framework of technology and social media that we have today, which takes all those things and really puts them on steroids. That's exactly right. You're exactly right, Jeff. I mean, you know, in the old days, um, you know, I don't know how old you are. I'm 67. I grew up in, you know, during Vietnam War time and civil rights era and all that stuff. But we all watched the same basic news. You know, we watched ABC, NBC, and CBS. And, and those stations were broadcasting to a broad audience. Couldn't afford to turn off half their audience by taking a strong political position. Um, not to mention the fact that we had different journalistic ethics in those days. And it was considered to be unethical for a journalist to to um, take a strong point of view. It was just not what journalists did. Journalists were supposed to be above the fray, so to speak. Now, of course, we have this tremendously bifurcated system of news where we're each getting our information from different places and usually from an echo chamber. So if I watch MSNBC and you watch Fox News, if I have my Facebook feed of my friends and you have yours, if I have my Twitter feed of my friends and you have yours and we unfeed or unfriend or block those who disagree with us, and then my feed has in it, um, you know, uh, the corresponding periodicals. Uh, if, on, on the right, it might be uh, the, the Drudge Report and Breitbart. On the left, it might be the Huff Post or Politico or something like that. Um, we live in these consistently self self-perpetuating echo chambers that make us more and more and more right and righteous about our point of view and less and less willing and able to listen to the other perspective even without disagreeing, just hearing it as another perspective. The other thing that is happening simultaneously is that we're seeing far less geographic, physical mobility than we used to see before for a whole host of other reasons that we won't get into. But what it also does is it reinforces us living in places with people like us. Yeah, that's a really interesting dynamic that we've seen occur over the last 25 or 30 years, and that is that if, if people are seemingly almost self-segregating uh, in terms of political enclaves, um, the Cook Political Report uh, has done a study since 1992 of what they call the Whole Foods Cracker Barrel Divide. Um, Whole Foods markets, uh, I'm sure most of our listeners know, are tend just t generally tend to be in more liberal enclaves, and uh, Cracker Barrel family restaurants tend to be in more conservative enclaves. It's not like they... I, I, I'm not suggesting that they choose those because of the politics. It just happens because of the demographics that they're going after that it plays out that way. And so what they've done is since 1992 or beginning with the 92 election, they've tracked the difference between voting patterns, um, who in those counties voted Democratic versus Republican in the, in the election results. And what they found was that in 1992, the gap was about 20% between those who voted for President Clinton um, in, the, in the market, uh, the corresponding markets. It's increased every single year, and in 2016, the gap was 54%. So what that means is you are probably, in the most, in, for the most part, living in, a in an area where your neighbors agree with you, 
where you've got social media that agrees with you, where you're watching a TV station that agrees with you, where you're listening to a radio station that agrees with you. And pretty soon, again, that echo chamber effect gets more and more and more reinforced because if I'm living with you, I may likely go to the same church with you. My kids go to the same, same school as you do. Our families hang out together. You know, this whole sense of building these, these uh, communities around us that, um, that continue to repeat what we already believe. The other aspect of this that seems to be happening today, and, and, and it's interesting the degree to which this is baked into to, to everything we've been talking about, is that it is now not, all, not enough just to associate with people like you, but now there's the requirement to demonize the other. Talk about that. Yeah. You know, Robert Putnam, who's a sociologist at Harvard, uh, who a lot of people will know for his best-selling book, uh, Bowling Alone, which he wrote back, I think it was around 2000, uh, a really remarkable study of social capitalism, uh, social capital, excuse me, in the United States, um, and, uh, you know, how that social capital has changed over the years. And he created this distinction between bonding and bridging, um, that we have certain relationships that we bond with, uh, certain people kinds of people who are kind of our people, if you will. For some people, it's family. For some people, it might be their religion. Um, for some people, it might be um, a racial group that, they, that they're that they part of because um, there's a sense that whatever happens to other people in this group could happen to me. Um, so there's that sense of a shared destiny there. Um, and these bonded relationships are the sort of the bedrock relationships we have in our lives and we tend to fall back on. We also have other relationships which are still extremely valuable of groups that we bridge to, where we cross those boundaries and we form relationships across race, across gender, across religion, across ethnicity. Um, And and in order to have a a healthy, full life, it generally works for us to have some of both. So we have some people who are like us and some people who are different from us. And that kind of diversity we know gives us a rounded view of life. We know in organizations it leads to higher productivity, more innovation, more creativity, and all these kinds of things. When people are fearful Um, the fear of the other uh, becomes more preeminent. And so we have a tendency to slip back to our bonded identities and spend less time bridging. And that fear also leads us to self-justification because we're in a protective mode. And so we're now in these increasingly bonded political identities, which in some cases are even superseding our family relationships. There were thousands of families who in the last couple of years uh, cancel Thanksgiving dinner rather than be at the table with Uncle Ernie who voted the other way than them. Now, we could say that that's kind of funny when we think about it, absurd when we think about it, but it's, it's, amazingly, it's amazingly impactful and, and terribly sad when you think about the fact that our political views have superseded our family views. And of course, the other thing that happens in this case is that as soon as we brand a group as an other, a phenomenon that comes in place, that comes in place that's been called the outgroup homogeneity effect. It was originally um, discovered by um, some psychologists. And, and that is that when somebody is identified as an outgroup, it's much easier to see all people in that outgroup as the same. Um, therefore, they have similar characteristics. Therefore, stereotyping becomes easier. Dehumanization becomes easier. And the problem we have now is that we've, we have a lot more bonding that is bonding against the other than it is bonding for something. 
whether it's bonding against President Trump on the left or bonding against liberals on the right, it's still bonding against as opposed to bonding for. And that's where you get the kind of toxicity that we see happening in our culture. And that's also driven by fear. It's driven by the fear of, of change, the fear of, of losing, and the fear that you have to not only blame somebody else, but that you have to see yourself as better than somebody else. Well, that's right. And, and this is where the righteousness comes in place. So there's a wonderful book that I recommend to people all the time. I think it's one of the most important books in America today. It's called The Righteous Mind, uh, written by Jonathan Haidt, H-A-I-D-T, who is a, uh, a professor at NYU. And, and John studies moral psychology. And, and he does a brilliant job, I think, of understanding why it is that liberals and conservatives see the world differently and how we are looking for different things, which, when we work together, can give a great sense of integration and mutuality. But when a park can lead us to see things very differently and to, as you said before, demonize the other. So it's no longer it's no longer you disagree with me because we have differences on issues. It's you're now one of those people who I don't like. And along with that comes all the you know, negative toxicity that we're seeing. Mm -hmm. How can we see any other possibility but this all ending very badly? Well, I think that, you know, I really believe that as citizens of a democracy, we have a responsibility uh, to create our own experience. And I think it starts with us as individuals. Um, and so let me talk about that for a moment, and then we'll talk about institutions and what institutions could do. I think as individuals, one of the things that we can do is we can start reaching out to people in our lives. I mean, one of the things that I did for the book, having, you know, having been somebody who's mostly been on the liberal left uh, for, for pretty much all of my life, I should say, um, you know, I started by starting to interview people who voted for president. Trump. And, uh, you know, at the time the book was written, I'd interviewed about 50. Now it's well over 100. And what I found in talking to people was my own stereotypes started to melt away. It's not that we agreed on issues. You know, there's one gentleman who lives in Florida. His name is Paul, who I've developed a particularly close relationship with over a course of 20 months. We've never met each other in person, but we've talked on the phone and mostly interact through Twitter and social media, other forms of social media. Um, we disagree on most things, but we've developed a very respectful, um, mutually um, uh, appreciative relationship in which we bounce ideas off of each other. I was just interacting with him this morning about what's going on in Jerusalem right now for example. And, um, and, you know, at some point Paul said to me, he said, you know, you haven't, you haven't changed my mind about much, but you changed my mind about something very important. You changed my mind about liberals. And I think he's changed my mind about conservatives in the same way, because even though we disagree on issues, I see his humanity and he sees mine. And, and I encourage people to have those conversations, not with an intent to convince, but with an intent to understand, to see why from your side of the world, the kinds of things that are offensive to me look okay, and why from my side of the world, the kinds of things that are offensive to you look okay. Right. You know, it's, um, it's, these are the kinds of conversations to start to rebuild our sense of a common humanity and a shared destiny and, and help us understand that we can disagree on issues but still relate as people and, re and respect and, and appreciate each other's humanity. Yeah. Um, from an institutional standpoint, uh, workplaces have an incredibly valuable role that they can play right now because the workplace is one of the few places where people are forced to come together with people who are different from them and still work together. And um, there are great places out there. Target is a great example. General Mills is doing some great work around building courageous conversations. Um, Kaiser Permanente did some great work in their culture around this. There are a lot of organizations who are trying to create these environments where people understand their biases, they understand their reactions, and can learn to communicate and, and relate effectively. 
Yeah, it's interesting on, on, on two fronts. One, there was a column, uh, and I don't remember who the columnist was. It was uh, somebody either in Florida or Chicago, I can't remember, talking about the fact that we no longer need to understand people that disagree with us profoundly, that in fact you're not going to convince them, it's not going to make any difference, and besides they're wrong, so why reach out to understand them? And, and there's too much of that going on now. But the other part of it, with respect to the workplace and what's going on within companies may be the answer to some of this because it's what's going on and the divisions that are going on are bad for business. And to the extent that economics might be more powerful than the politics, that may be the way out. Yeah, I, I sometimes call that enlightened self-interest. Jeff, you know it, it's true that there's uh, that there could be a tendency for people to say, okay, um, you know, I, I may not have a personal issue about this, but I can't I can't have an environment where half the people who are out there in the marketplace are afraid to come in my store because I'm so decidedly on one side versus another, and therefore I try to create an environment of mutuality and respect, and hopefully that does lead us in that path, and, and in some cases that 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 may very well be the truth. I, there's no question that the economic impact um, on the media has contributed to it. It's negative breakdown in the sense that in the old days, you had to speak to that larger audience to hit your economic numbers. Um, it, nowadays, you know, if you're a cable news station, you don't have to hit 100%. You can hit just a small segment, and as long as you feed red meat to that base and they keep watching you every night, whether you're you know, Rachel Maddow or Rush Limbaugh um, or Sean Hannity or whoever, um, as long as you feed you know, feed to your base, uh, and they keep watching you, um, then you've hit your numbers and you've hit enough to stay on the air. And, you know, I may, I may agree with Rachel more than, than I do, uh, Sean Hannity, but the energetically, um, this notion of, of building my case and constantly reinforcing my case leads to this continued separa separation and polarization. To what extent do you see this getting worse? And, and what is it going to take, in your view, for it to bottom out? You know, it's hard to say. I mean, I think I, it is worsening. I mean, there's mm -hmm. no question that it continues to worsen at this point. Um, I do think that there are some hopeful signs. There are um, groups of people that I have encountered in both in my research and when I was, you know, looking for the book, and also because of the book, people have reached out to me. And there are there are people who are doing things like I know in Virginia. There's a dear friend of mine named Jan Canterbury who's working with an organization called Building Bridges in the state of Virginia, and they're going around and trying to get community dialogues going on between people who are different. Um, there's a no labels movement, which you're probably familiar mm -hmm. with, of politicians who are coming together and saying, let's get back to talking about issues and getting away from these liberal, conservative, Democrat, Republican labels instead. How do we deal with gun control? How do we deal with foreign policy, et cetera? Um, there are people like the Tannenbaum Center who are doing great work across Across religious understanding to help people bring mutual respect for people of different religions. So, so it is hopeful that there are a lot of people there. And one of the things that I would hope is that people would start paying attention to some of these um, efforts more, and uh, people in the media, especially, of course, because that's how things get broadcast. But even on social media, that we can, you know, spread the word about these and to and to begin to work to 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 do these individual breakthroughs in our in our personal lives and in our collective lives. And I guess that's an important question whether this and and one that's debated frequently whether the answer to this is from the bottom up whether it is the kind of grassroots efforts that you're talking about or that it's going to require charismatic leadership to make these points and to to really sell the idea of coming together. Yeah, I mean, I, look, I mean, I think charismatic leadership is great, and, and it's challenging when you have, you know, a president who 
who says things that are so obviously offensive to certain people, like, you know, just saw him quoted yesterday or the day before and, and talking about people who were coming into the country right. illegally as not even human, that they were animals. You know, I mean, that just doesn't help. And, and that's got nothing to do with the politics involved. It's got to do with our tonality. In the same sense, people on the left who, who or, or Hillary Clinton's comment about the, unrede- the basket of deplorables and unredeemables. Similarly, it does nothing to serve our, our civility in our culture to talk about each other that way and you know it's understandable that we get frustrated and angry with each other I, I, look I've been I've been sucked into this myself as a matter of fact the, the the thing that really triggered the book was a couple of years ago when I started to realize how much I was being pulled into this us versus them narrative more than I ever had and as somebody who had spent most of my life really being somebody who, who tried to listen to and understand the other point of view I found myself in that same in situation and it began the whole inquiry that led to this book started with me saying what's going on with me that I'm like so reactive here um, so I think we've got to stop and take a breath and say is this communication really one that's going to create civility in our structure or are we just being right are we just doing this so that we can be right and make them wrong yeah it's interesting because the civility it is part of the discussion the civility is part of what the division is about it's sort of a little bit like the uncertainty principle that by measuring it you don't really understand it because the measuring affects the outcome so much of this yep. is not about issues or it's not about you know who has guns and who doesn't but it goes to the tonality that you're talking about and it goes to the heart of the culture yep that's exactly right that's exactly right, and it, and uh, I think that uh, um, the, we use each other's uh, lack of civility to justify our own lack of civility. This is a little bit what happened with the Michelle Wolf um, uh, appearance at the uh, White House Correspondents Center. Now, now I think Michelle Wolf is funny, and I like her. I think she's a very bright young comedian, and when she's on Comedy Central at night, you know, I can enjoy watching her and laughing, and, you know, in that context, it makes sense. But the White House Correspondents' Dinner has become has become now just some place where people put somebody on who rags other people. And, and of course, there's that counter reaction to it. And people say these were, you know, insulting comments. And the response mm-hmm. to that is, well, how can you complain about these insulting comments when the president insults people every day? And then the response back to that. And we can hear how in our conversations it just continues to escalate more and more and more. You know, the question is, but who's going to say, wait, right, this but escalation wa- but there was is, a t- is the challenge in and of itself. But there was a time that people could do roasts of people and, and comedians like Don Rickles people thought was were funny. I mean, we, we, it's just gotten out of hand in so many respects. Well, and the other thing that we have to keep in mind is that things are situational. I mean, look, my wife and I have a great relationship. We've been, get, it's been together 27 years, and we still fortunately love each other very much. And, um, and yet there are times when our relationship has been more fragile than other times, when one of us was feeling insecure or sensitive about something or one of us did something to hurt each other's feelings. That's not the time when I would tease her. You know, if it was a fragile time in our relationship, I might be more careful about teasing her about something or, or busting her about something, or she me for that matter. Whereas at another time when our relationship is rock solid and we're feeling really tight, um, we could say outrageous things to each other and both laugh at it and, and not have it be a big deal. You know, I think we have to be sensitive to the fact that we're in a time where everybody's on a hair trigger and the things that might have been acceptable at another time um, are not acceptable or uh, maybe not acceptable is not way of putting it because I don't want to make this sound like I'm suggesting we suppress people's freedom of speech people could do whatever they want but but we do have to be responsible for the impact of our speaking and and at a time when people are so 
on hair triggers, um, that kind of speaking just leads to more and more and more of the same fear and hate. Right. But what it also does, to the extent that it's repressed, it kind of defines deviancy downward in its own way. It defines downward what is and isn't acceptable. And there's an argument to be made about how permanent that becomes. Well, yeah, I mean, I, th- I, could, I could certainly understand that argument, but, but it's not historically well-founded. I mean, his history tells us there's certain things we could talk more easily about at some times and less easily at other times. We go through phases in our careers, in our personal relationships, where we know that's true, that there's some times when people feel safer and more comfortable talking about certain things. I'm certainly not arguing for suppression. I'm a, I'm a, a passionate free speech advocate on both sides. I, I'm, no, I'm no more... Um, comfortable with people uh, suppressing people on the left because they don't like what they say or people on the right because I believe that free speech is one of the things that make us, makes us most inherently American. Um, but I do think that responsible speech is still important and even though people have the right to say anything they want, um, they're still responsible for the impact of that speaking on other people. Mm-hmm. To what extent do you think that this is going to continue to play out in our politics well, I mean, I think one of the things that we're seeing is, um, um, for, among some people, is uh, the railing against the inevitability of a changing America, mm-hmm. uh, you know, particularly racially. Uh, you know, we, know, we know there's no question when we look at the demographics of our country that our country is shifting from being, you know, what was in the mid-1960s a 90% white country or, I guess, 80% white country um, to what now is more around 60 to 65 percent and which will be less than 50 percent some people say by as early as 2037 some people you know 2040 or 45 um, and I think that there is uh, this does bring up fear when when we talk about make America great again for a lot of people what it really means is make America white again I'm not saying by the way that all Trump voters feel that way I'm just saying for some people that's the case which is why you see white supremacists jumping onto that bandwagon um, I think that one of the things that's really important for us to understand is that we have to separate um, the distinction between supporters and voters. You know, in the same sense as uh, there were a lot of people who voted for Secretary Clinton who were, wouldn't necessarily characterize themselves as supporters of hers. In fact, in in many cases, people have said, I held my nose and voted for her. There were similarly people on the Republican side who felt like they just couldn't vote for Secretary Clinton. Even though they didn't like President Trump, they voted for him anyway. In fact, when I asked the people who I interviewed, um, one of the questions I asked all of them was, did you vote more for him or against her? 56% of them said that they voted more against her than they voted for him. And so um, so we've gotten to the place where in our election, and, and we knew this, of course, because statistically all the polls showed that these were the two most unpopular presidential candidates that we've ever had. Um, and so, um, and so we're, you know, we think about that. We chose the person to run the most powerful country in the world based on the fact that we didn't like the other person rather than we liked him. I mean, that's kind of scary. Uh, we've got to get back to finding politicians who speak for things that are positive um, and for affirmation and bringing people together um, and not that splits people apart. Or that tribalism just takes hold and, you know, we wind up like the Sunnis and the Shias in the Middle East. And that's not a pretty picture. And, and I think that we have to recognize that 
um, you know, while you know it's been said, I think Dr. King said that the the um, arc of history moves towards human freedom, and I think that's true. And and over time, you know, there's it's a great work that's being done recently by Steven Pinker. You may be familiar. Right. He's got a new book out called Enlightenment Now, in which he talks about how when we study virtually all patterns of human behavior, that they have steadily improved over the last hundred years or last couple hundred years. And there's no question that this is the best time in human history to live on the planet relative to almost any measure of human performance. However, that doesn't mean that we're um, that the, the resilience of our country and our culture doesn't mean that it's a given. It doesn't mean that we that it can't fall apart. The, um, the United States of America is a young, still a young country. We've only been around a, you know 250 years, and um, and uh, that's not very old uh, for a country. You know, most country, you go to Europe or countries have been around for more than a thousand years in some cases. Uh, uh, the notion that our country can inevitably sustain this is, I think we can't be so arrogant as to think that's necessarily the case. And so we have to be very careful where this is leading us. Howard Ross, his book is our search for belonging, how our need to connect is tearing us apart. Howard, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Jeff, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.